Hey there, before we get started, just a little disclaimer. The following episode is going to be based on a topic that some people may find a little sensitive. That is black history, faith communities, non-belief, and the way those things all play on each other. With that said, we welcome you. But if you feel like you may want to put this off for another time when you're ready to go down that rabbit hole, let's go. This season, we've talked the Bible, the Black Church, Islam, the Harlem Renaissance, Black Socrates, Pan-Africanism, Black Georgians in England, white evangelicals here in the United States and their Black counterparts, the momentum of memory, the violence of forgetting, and so much more. It's taken us 18 episodes, but today we wrap up the premiere season of this journey, covering the history in race, religion, and liberation struggles. And we're just getting started. This Education, doubt, critique, science, achievement, engineering, Africa, America, <laughs> and more American. Welcome back once again. If you're just joining us, last week when we left off in episode 17, we promised we would continue with our conversation series. And Verdell and I have been deconstructing our faith and experiences within the Black church because we're still processing. And we wanted to expose and explore those details that cause people like us to be skeptical, to doubt, and to find better alternatives to faith-based solutions to Black and human issues. So we're jumping right back in where we left off in episode 17, and here's the conclusion to our conversation. that there's just a lot of work that needs to be done that frankly, I think this is the part that's disappointing to people. The black church is really not that, that progressive. And you know, churches, by definition, are not designed to be progressive. To the extent that they have been or that they are, it is essentially a last resort to preserve the institution and to make sure that it doesn't become completely obsolete. I'm just saying as a musician, I, I know, I, I know what my congregations, when I play for them, I know what they want. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I was able to do it as long as I did, but because I understood what those people wanted. Um, and they would change in subtle ways between different congregations and different denominations. But I knew that there's an expectation to continue tradition when I come mm -hmm. there. And so I, when I say that, you know, they're not designed to be traditional, I don't mean that as an epithet. I just mean to say, like, they're designed to hold tradition. You know, uh, victory is mine, da, 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 victory, yeah. like that people want to hear that song. People mm -hmm. don't want, like, I know, you know, there's Tasha Cobbs and Kira and all these other folks who who do these amazingly complex songs that are now, quote, popular in gospel music. But the reality is most people are not going to a church that's a, a theater that's got like a fully fledged light rig and, you know, sound board and 25 people in a band and giant screens and stuff like most people are not going to that church. So that music does not work 
in those types of churches. What works is victory is mine and you know what a mighty God we serve and and a drummer who maybe hopefully has two sticks that can play it. The tradition is important. And to your point about the black church not being that progressive, I mean, there are clearly exceptions and there's a, a tension that's very pronounced. But I think the tradition is still winning out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's because also people aren't going. So there's that. So, there's that too. Um, <laughs> um, that part. But, I mean, there are some cultural distinctions because of Blackness that makes Black churches sometimes a different situation. But the reality is, is that particularly from my experience in those spaces, this is what I would say. One, there was a time when some different things were possible, more possible than before, perhaps. And of what you have are a lot of people who are in power who don't want to share it. I think it's on the last show, but a lot of preachers, particularly men, this is the only thing they can do. And I don't say that to be any rude or disrespectful. This is what they can do. This is what their talent shines. And if they don't have this, they are regular Joe Schmo. This is their one chance to quote unquote be somebody. And without this, they ain't nobody. Not, not, and not in the ways that culturally matter. And so they hold on and they stay pastor until they're basically a bag of dust (laughs) and they stay and they stay and they stay. And what happens is that generations of people leave. And particularly when you get to like late Gen X, early millennials like myself, and then even further on, people moved on, you know, like people have a different understanding of the world now and they just aren't willing to willingly sign up for a place that's going to degrade gay people or talk about women being subservient or whatever. Like people aren't willing now to to say, oh, that sounds cool. I'm going to sign up. Or if they do go, it's for like connection and community and they just ignore all that other stuff. And so they've lost the chance to connect with other people because they wanted to connect with folks on their terms. And it's not even so much that those folks, even you know, myself included, that they didn't want tradition, but it's like we do things the same way every time and it's not reflective of us. You want our money, you want our time, but nothing here reflects our reality, our lives, our experiences. And so people left. And they're not coming back. Um, And they're still spiritual. They still love Jesus and their crystals and whatever else. So as long as if they're dropping religion, they're just not coming to y'all, which I think is even more telling. It's like, no, they didn't stop believing. They're just not dealing with you. And the church really, I think the Black church will have a certain vibrancy just because it is what it is and the the cultural meaning that it has. But vibrant in terms of a a force, (laughs) you know what I mean, in terms of justice and stuff. Again, even even back in the day, like it wasn't like every church didn't agree. Many churches did not agree with Martin Luther King at all, and had Absolutely. nothing to do with want nothing to do with what he was doing. Um, he was doing too much, too far. Some people even found offense to the way he was talking about black people. It was like, well, God loves everybody, right? Yeah, that's and a they, yeah. They found offense the fact that he was focusing and talking so much um, about black people. It's like, well, God loves everybody, and I can't really. You know, I don't live a gospel where God only cares about black people type of thing. That's a part of that cultural myth making that I was the other end of the spectrum of it, you know, in a way, because uh, we have been fed that that idea that church is synonymous with civil rights and or the struggle of civil rights in this country. So much so that when we talk about black church, we're talking about literally it doesn't matter where that church is. That church was involved in the struggle. And it's like, no, there are a lot of people who opted out 
And, you know, and some folks are still alive to say so. I have a friend that played at a church in Houston and told me that the uh, original pastor was someone who marched with Dr. King, but who decided to not go all the way with him and decided to come back and focus on building Wheeler Ave back into the church that it is and has been today, which is an institution of its own. I'm not trying to out anybody or anything like that. I'm just trying to say he's one of the many people who are still alive who can say, you know, I didn't join the fight. Martin's Christianity was so far away from anything that the vast majority of black churches to then and today would consider Christianity. Right. I don't think people quite get that. But I think that's the thing, though, is that even at those times, like I think it's very archetypical, honestly, like when the AME church is founded and Richard Allen is, is you know, founding it. And then I don't know if people hear the story, but Janera Lee, who was a popular common preacher at the time, she wanted to get licensed in the AME church and Richard Allen turned her away. Uh, yeah, so I've heard of that. Though, you know, even though it's this this idea of building solidarity and building up, you know, black people within that is baked misogyny is yep. big sexism even classism you know yeah. what I mean? like there was a big tension between free blacks and blacks who were who came out of slavery right because the free yep. blacks were more kind of quote unquote civilized mm -hmm. a little more pulled up they were the beginning of the black bourgeoisie right. essentially yeah. but see here is my take because i've done some reading and, and writing on this the closest thing we can get to, like, I think at the Hush Harbors was the most authentic expression of what we would understand as Blackness, because there, it wasn't a morality to it. It was about honoring Black bodies. Oh, I can't believe I said that. I hate that phrase. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, honoring black bodies swinging. You know, I just don't like it. Everybody says Black bodies now. And I'm just yeah, like, I, I always get... Uh, is it a morgue? What is happening? What do you mean, black bodies? Like, what yeah. is happening? They're people. I get um, strange fruit vibes when I hear that. Black yeah, bodies. Like, black bodies. Like, what? This is Halloween. That's creeping me out. But um, yeah, it's it wasn't more. It wasn't about morality. It was about holding each other up. And inevitably, there were gay people there. Inevitably, it was what we might consider trans people there. You know, of course, it wasn't anything like we would say today, but they just took what they wanted, what they thought was good from the Jesus tradition that they liked and annexed it to the things they had left and mixed it all together and used it for their purposes. A lot of what Black people practice today is, this is this is rough, but it's true. It's just like Christianity with the Black scent. And that's really the truth. And that's something <laughs> that creates its own tension too. I'm reminded of the recent video of a, of a conversation with the pastor from, from Atlanta. And I believe Kirk Franken was in on the conversation where he's talking about the the blessing, the white blessing of slavery. Uh, you've seen that. He, I, I'll be sure to send that to you, and, and and I'll include something in this. But he talks about the white blessing of slavery as a way to. They were trying to have a conversation addressing January six, and and this is Pastor Louis Giglio. Uh, he talks about the white oh, okay. blessing, heard that name blessing of sl slavery with with the with the George Floyd thing. It was interesting because I saw a lot of this as well. I saw a lot of I've got some some friends as well that I saw participating in this. And it made me really uncomfortable because in the megachurch world of Christianity is an attempt to conflate or mesh or meld the black megachurch Pentecostal world with the white megachurch Pentecostal world and to try to 
present something that's uniform and without seams in terms of culture or and ideology. And this is addressing, in the age of Trump, specifically addressing the calcification of white supremacy in white Christianity. And I think in their own way, try to account for them not being as bad as black people think they are in terms of their political leanings. All of the statistics that we have show that the biggest predictor of who would vote for this particular president was being white and Christian, especially being white Christian and female. Like that's the biggest predictor. And I think that these conversations that and George Floyd, Christians were trying to wrestle with, okay, how do we understand our black Christian brothers and sisters, given these pressures, these racial pressures and the climate that we're in. And so he's trying to address slavery in a theological context where he knows God has ordained everything and that God does everything well. And he can't disclaim slavery because Slavery is in the Bible. It's not condemned. And there are scriptures that talk about how to have slaves. And so he knows that he has to address that within the context of a good, loving God. And what comes out on the other side is, oh, well, maybe God blessed white people with slavery so that it could draw them closer to Christ and so that we would all end up being better Christians because we have the benefit of all the economic gain and so forth. And it's this really convoluted conversation that he had in public. And Kirk Franklin is sitting there nodding in agreement. I just say that to say white Christianity in blackface. That's what I thought of, because you would have to be thinking of that if you agreed with someone saying that slavery is not just a blessing, but a white blessing. But I think going back to your thing about accountability, and I'm, I'm going to say two things about that. I think that one, it shows about theological education and that they have none, because one of the major things that Paul writes about, particularly in Galatians, is he says, like, you know, doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, we whatever, whatever, whatever. Those were the major identifications of the ancient world to, as he understood them, as they understood them. And so what he's saying is that all of those divisions are torn down. We are all the same in Christ. These things that divide rich and poor, like, and not on some milk toast, we all bleed the same, but like, no, that's done. There are no slaves. No one gets lorded over. The, the community is transformed because these divisions are torn down and not just in a fake colorblind way, but like literally no, society has changed. Everybody has what they need. There are no slaves. Everybody is free. No one is threatening the other. Like it's, it's a much more, I know it might be funny, but I think Paul doesn't sometimes get the credit for the good things that he says, particularly because a lot of stuff that is bad is, is books that he didn't write, but that's a whole nother thing. But it's there. It's like he's saying that in Christ, these things don't exist. And it's a, also like an education of today because yes, there were slaves and slavery. I mean, I don't, I don't think slavery is ever good, but the way that slavery took place in the United States and in the new world was distinctly different than what slavery was in most other places. When they were selling and trading slaves in Africa, these folks were slaves already and they had no idea what they were giving them into, but they these slaves would have houses and families and things. And after a certain amount of time, they got to be free. Like it wasn't when we say slavery, we like and again, it doesn't mean it's good. I'm not defending it, but there's a distinction to chattel slavery and the fact that race was attached to it 
to the point when it's the foundation of even what we are dealing with today, that is a very distinct thing. And to say that, even if you want to say that slavery is a blessing, it's not the same. Like, it's not apples to apples at all. And so there is that. But I think Kirk Franklin is a good point of accountability and the lack of it for another reason. Remember when he... Can, can, so, sorry, hold, hold that thought. Hold that thought. I just want to correct myself because I, I had said Kirk Franklin and it's actually a rapper named Lecrae. Um, oh, that was him? Yeah. I thought he was doing better. Oh. So I just, I, that's the only reason I interrupted you because I, I had it wrong. Although Kirk Franklin has said the same, more or less the same thing because he had a song that said, doesn't matter what color you are as long as your blood was yeah, red. Yeah, as long as so your forth. blood is red. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, but continue on. I'm sorry. I think that he's a good example. Remember a while back when, you know, his son was talking about the issues and whatever, and he was really saying it and, and just saying his issues and whatever. And he was saying how Kirk Franklin was talking to him and how he was always talked to. And there were some people who were like, this is an outcry, whatever. But a lot of people were like, well, that's fine because he's a man and that's his son. He can do it. It's it's fine. And that is why accountability doesn't happen because too many people think that things like that are okay. And it comes that when situations like that happen, that's when you really see, oh no, we're not well. We're not a well people at all because Son or not, one, why are you talking to somebody like that? You know what I mean? About hitting somebody and whatever, whatever. And why would you want to talk to your own child like that, number two? And three, here's the thing that I don't get. A lot of these folks talk about generational wealth and leaving something behind, but they don't want to give their kids no money. I don't get it. White people don't do that. If the parents have money, the kids have money, whether they do nothing or not, because it's generational. And we don't do that. It's like, oh, I have my, oh, you got to go get yours. But that's not generational wealth. I got mine. You get yours the best way you can. Yeah, it's like, it's one thing to say, oh, I'm not spoiling people. But it's like, if your son is eating Vienna sausages under a blanket, without any heat and you are you have money or, or, a Christian, or, doc, or dr dre's uh daughter out there yeah. living in her car but you see it's the same thing and that's the thing it's like it's the same idea in the mindset and it again i think it's a, a bigger cultural thing but in the church situation you can use scripture to back it up well he's the head and you know he's got a discipline spare the rod spoil the child which actually is not how it's written in there I just learned recently that apparently that's a part of a, a BDSM poem. I'll show you like the video. And so basically it's a fear the rod, spoil the child. Oh, that brings a whole new that. meaning to it. <laughs> a whole the, new. The way it's said in, in the Bible is spare the rod. I can't remember how it's phrased, but what is basically, it's not talking about hitting somebody. The word there is about a shepherd's staff. So it's not talking about hitting somebody. It's about guiding your children and disciplining them, not beating them upside the head, but showing them how to live, guiding them in the way that they should go about their lives. Right. Um, it's not about hitting somebody and you know, spare the rod, spoil the child. Well, if you spare the rod, that means you aren't leaving them. So in Quiet As Is Kept, a lot of people are sparing the rod. Quiet As Is Kept. That part. <laughs> but um, again, but that I think it's another point. It's like if you ha- believe these things about masculinity and all these other things and, and and misogyny and all this type of stuff. I mean, again, like I had an unfortunate experience a week ago with some unfortunate soul yelling all types of stuff at me. I could tell you he wasn't exactly well, but if you didn't know that, he says the same things that people who are in sound mind say about queer people. He says the same thing. 
And so is everybody sick or is there a coincidence here? Like what's going on? Culturally, we have deeply entrenched views about masculinity, about women, about how we should function, about how men should behave, about how women should behave. That is why R. Kelly could do what he did for so open i I was i was gonna say you know there's there's that too because there's a you know there's a a storyline in that where he is aided by and abetted by someone in the church Mm -hmm. blessing the marriage someone who was or probably still is an ordained preacher with the congregation who is a part of the enabling that was most prominently the the mm-hmm. one that he had with um with Aaliyah, which I, I shouldn't call it a relationship. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's yeah, in open. He had, and he told us, "I'm the Pied Piper." Mm-hmm. And people loved it. And and there are still people defending him. There are still people right now coming to the courthouse. He has super fans in the court that are standing outside of the courthouse who are defending him even now, even today, um, because they. They are it's super the fans. It's girls, it's the girls' fault. They fast. That's why they they want every everybody's a um, a groupie. Everybody's somebody who just wanted to be put on. <laughs> Hi, this is Frederick from Pasadena, and you are listening to the WWH podcast. Are you currently on a faith journey of your own? Are you questioning, seeking to find community in a way that's outside of traditional religious institutions? Or reimagining yourself in relationship to your community and your surroundings as a formerly religious person? You're not as alone as you think you are. There are communities and people and organizations that exist to help people like you in your own journey along the way of life in your questions, in humanism, free thought, in social justice, education, LGBTQ advocacy, scholarships, and more. You are absolutely not the only one. There are others like you, and we're organized, we're engaged, we're active, we're protesting, communicating, and we're trying to live healthy lives as best and ethically as we possibly can, and to have a little fun along the way. Learn more about some of these organizations, like the ones that have produced this podcast, Where We're Headed. You can find out more at American humanist.org and blacknonbelievers.org. That's the American Humanist Association at americanhumanist.org. And on Facebook, search us at Black Nonbelievers of DC and Black Nonbelievers at blacknonbelievers.org. Find us online, support today, check us out. I think that there's so many things that I want to continue talking with you about with this. I, I want to kind of put a little pause on it. Maybe we can... Um, because there's so many things. So I, I didn't even get into the Harry Jackson thing. And then then there's also some stuff that's adjacent to Black people. It's not necessarily all about Black people, but I'm sure you've heard of the, the Hillsong oh, controversy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I tweeted something about that when I heard that. Like, you know, Hillsong will say the same world, the same three words over and over and over. And I just tweeted, you're going to jail now, you're going to jail now, you're going to jail now. And I just repeated over and over again. Yeah. Um, you know, with that same one little guitar and this one yeah. white yeah, Where and the little and the picture of the trees or the the grass yeah, in the back. It's like Fern Gully or some type of <laughs> mystical world. That's what it sounds like. It's like some type of video game music, um, some type of mystical, magical place somewhere. Like you just see New Zealand in the background, and a, <laughs> it's the flowing dress is humming, and then yeah. it's saying the same over and over and over again. It's um, it's but, so, <laughs> you know, on one level, all of it is explainable 
when you just think about how trash human beings are and or can be, it's mm-hmm. all explainable. You know, human beings were, were deeply flawed species. When you put the lens of the sort of predestined sort of world of the spiritual view that says, you know, all of this is being guided by the hand of God and so forth. That's when it really becomes even more of a problem, I think, because now you don't just have the depravity of of human beings, you know, in their willingness to enact harm and violence on one another. But now you have the notion that there's some good force Mm -hmm. that is guiding it, that's interested in the outcome of someone's suffering. So I will say this about that, because I think it, there's so many ways to come at accountability. Mm-hmm. This is tough, but I'm going to say it. I truly think that when people say that it is a complete abdication of their own responsibility to take control and live their own life or take responsibility for it. Because what the real answer is that life, we don't have an answer. We don't know. Life inherently has no meaning unless we give it one. And the idea of that is terrifying. So we want to think that somehow this is a grand story with a good, happy ending that somehow doesn't end in death. And it means that even all the bad things, they were meant to happen because ultimately is there something after this. And so many atrocities from the little to the grand, from somebody saying, oh, I'm going to go to an island or whatever in Michigan, right? Because this is what God's will is to the fact that climate crisis is literally a big part religiously is because, well, God's going to burn all this shit up anyway. We can do whatever we want with it. And so it's the inability. And it's hard. It's a human thing. But the inability to deal with our own finite nature and the senselessness of life that life outside of these things that we tell ourselves, it can be terrifying. Like one day you're just conscious. You don't know where you came from. You don't know how you got here. And then one day you going back and you don't know what that is either. And in between there is all these bumps and bruises and ups and downs and highs and lows. And we got to have some way to help it to make sense which is why I think I typically say to people, it's like, you know, the rational part of our brains is the youngest part and it takes the most energy to use. To say that, oh no, people, we're emotional and our rationality is often filtered through our emotion because that's just how we are. We don't, if there's a lion in the bush, we don't need to think about it. We need to feel scared and run, right? So that is the thing. I think that there are so many people who put their external locus of control, they put it outside of themselves. God is going to do it. You know, I'm going to work for it, but God has to do it. It's like, you know, when somebody says, oh, I sang a song and it was so good. Oh, God did that. And it's like, but no, you didn't sing that good, <laughs> that that it's God. Like, I don't think, like you sing great, but I think if God did it, it would sound way better than what you did, even if you're a great singer. But it's just this, I, I know as for me, that was a big thing that helped that eventually is what led me to stop trying to preserve my faith once I realized how that functioned in my own life and was kind of used to to explain the way to things that I endured. But things like that, this is what God ordained. This is how God set it up. You know, let God, let God have his way. I don't want to call it lazy because I think lazy in and of itself is a lazy word. It is a complete abdication of responsibility for what is going on around you and to you. So well said, so, like literally so well said. The only thing that I would add to that is you said it's the inability to to acknowledge the world around you and so forth. I would only add that it's the inability and in so many cases, the refusal to acknowledge what's going around. It is right in front of you and you won't Mm -hmm. acknowledge it. Yeah.
Thank you, Brother Verdell. Thank you for Thank you so much, Verdell. You are an invaluable resource to this show. To those of you listening, I hope that this kind of conversation really gives an insight or a roadmap to how people like us as black non-believers and black secular humanists got to this place, because this is the motivation for what we're doing. As we said from the beginning, regardless of what your faith position may or may not be, these are the types of issues that affect our community and our mentality and our liberation struggles. This podcast is committed to showcasing those conversations with free inquiry without fear, dogma, or shame. Hi, this is Reggie, and you're listening to Where We're Headed. Coming up next season. Listen, I need my drummer back there to give me two chops so we can go straight to church. I said, who came to praise him in Philadelphia? (laughs) I said, who came to praise him in Philadelphia? I ain't gonna beg you. Is that how we do things in America, Afghan? Al-Qaeda? Osama? Huh? Is it? But here, let's call this the barter system. Hey, I'm a little interested in these two. Oh, oh, is there someone hit me and they, I he got with the Jojo? Yeah, he took a lot hey, here, Jojo. Oh, During the pandemic, we took that opportunity to really explore through AfricanAncestry.com, which is a Black-owned business that helps you identify who and where you come from, we took that opportunity to look at all sides of our family. It's a homosexuality case. That's where I've come to ensure that our country prospers, our people are not taking advantage of homosexuality, does not take root because it hurts many of our young people who get lured into it or forced into it. Yeah. But this section of the penal code provides for life sentence. Any person who has colored knowledge of any person against the order of nature is liable to imprisonment for life. 95% of the population does not uh, support homosexuality. Rotation now, they are fearing homophobia in people. They're going to begin killing us and just hitting us out here. Churches took half the money that they was making and gave it back to the community, we'd be all right. And they take half the buildings that they used to praise God and gave it to motherfuckers who need God, we'd be all right. It's homeless people out here. Why ain't God letting them stay here? Why these niggas got gold ceilings and shit? Why God need gold ceilings to talk to me? The creature, he called us cockroaches. It quickly links with the statement that was said in Rwanda, like trying to bring up another genocide of the LGBT communities. But isn't it amazing that through all of the viruses and the sicknesses and the uncertainties and the setbacks, 
that the rumor over your life is still true that no weapon that's formed against you I said no weapon that's formed against you shall prosper and every tongue that rises against you somebody praise God for the rest the resurrection. Hi, this is Alexandra, and you're listening to Where We're Headed. One of the best models that I've had for having conversations without fear, dogma, and shame has been Dr. Sakibu Hutchinson. I was first introduced to her in 2012 when I was still on the edges of my faith and I was checking out what the secular and free thought and black atheist world had in store. And I went to a conference at Howard University and saw her on a panel with Richard Dawkins, Mark D. Hatcher, and Neil deGrasse Tyson. And I was in Crampton Auditorium hearing this iconoclast and amazing, brilliant thinker. And I was immediately floored. I was like, who is this woman? She is one of the most brilliant, outspoken thinkers of this time in this particular conversation. And she's the author of a number of books, Godless Americana, Race and Religious Rebels, Moral Combat, and a number of others. And you should really check her out. And so as we wrap up this first season of Where We're Headed, who better to close us out for all of the conversations and all of the topics that we've covered along the way? Who better to sum it all up than this amazing black woman, writer, free thinker, and scholar? Humanists in the hood, unapologetically black, feminist, and heretical, and moral combat, black atheists, gender politics, and the values wars, which was the first book on atheism to be published by an African-American woman. She founded Black Skeptics Los Angeles, a mentoring program for young women of color in South LA. She also co-founded LA's only black LGBTQI plus parent and caregiver group. In 2020, Harvard University named her Humanist of the Year. And this spring, we've been proud to count her as a Pitzer professor when she began teaching here a one-of-a-kind course on African-American humanism in our secular studies program, Sakivu Hutchinson. Thank you, Dina Motu. And I want to thank the students, teachers, family, and staff I also want to recognize the Gabrielino Tongva as the stewards and caretakers of this land. It is my profound honor to deliver the commencement address for this incredible student body. One that I might add overcame tremendous adversity, uncertainty, and trauma to make it here today to be the primo badasses that you are. I salute you badasses. The class of 2020 was the first to stare out into the abyss of mass death and destruction while braving anti-vax, anti-science, lies, and propaganda that contributed to more suffering. You were the first since 1918 to have your hopes and dreams shut down, deferred by a global pandemic that has claimed the lives of millions, further destroyed what little wealth remained in communities of color, and further exposed the gross disparities of American racial capitalism. Everyone here 
has lost someone during the pandemic or has known loss through a family member, a friend, a coworker, or a fellow student. This past weekend, African-American community members in Buffalo and AAPI community members a stone's throw away in the OC were murdered in vicious terrorist attacks of anti-black and anti-Taiwanese violence. We take a moment of silence to acknowledge them and all the lost lives in this pandemic season, to say their names, to remember, to cherish, but also to reckon with the poetry of the invisible. Our struggle to come to voice and find our voice hinges on these small everyday memorials that are often beyond language. The black lesbian mother, warrior, poet, Audre Lorde once said in her 1978 poem, Litany for Survival, that for those of us who live at the shoreline, standing upon the constant edges of decision, crucial and alone, for those of us who cannot indulge the passing dreams of choice, who love in doorways, coming and going, in the hours between dawns, looking inward and outward, at once before and after, seeking a now that can breed futures. And when the sun rises, we are afraid it might not remain. When the sun sets, we are afraid it might not rise in the morning. When we are loved, we are afraid love will vanish. When we are alone, we are afraid. Love will never return. And when we speak, we are afraid. Our words will not be heard nor welcomed. But when we are silent, we are still afraid. So it is better to speak, remembering we were never meant to survive. Your class, badasses, has gone beyond surviving to thriving as artists fighting to be heard, not only by the world, but by yourselves. Beating back those dive bomber inner voices that say you can't do it. The me that says this is too damn hard. The I that says I can't get the F up from bed. The myself that says I'm scared and I'm worthless and six feet under sounds like a lovely vacation right now. Many of you have already been to hell and back, nursing sick relatives, scrambling to pay bills, fighting to keep a roof over your heads, grinding to live up to the sucky world of adulthood and responsibility. And if you were a black girl, if you were a girl of color, you already knew that life. You knew the double burden and you felt the mental health toll because we're still, let's break it down, seen as disposable. We are still viewed in this misogynoirist world, which means anti-black misogyny, as the essential worker mules, to paraphrase Zora Neale Hurston. Since your ceremony was hijacked in 2020, some of you have started families, you've created businesses and nonprofits, You've protested, you've agitated, you've published, you've made films, you've cranked out stories, you've created alternative universes or multiverses through this poetry of the invisible. How do you, as an artist, 
a daydreamy storyteller, sit down to write sci-fi when our lives have morphed into sci-fi? How do you envision and build worlds that go beyond the dystopic? How do you listen to all the terrified, scattered selves that you have ever been? The first grader who was molested by boys being boys. The sixth grader who directed a play centered around the Twilight Zone. The black girl in a sea of white boys who was accused wrongfully of plagiarism by their English professor. How do you harness these rebellious Pandora's box use in the midst of trauma and breathe life into what starts out as mere murmurs and ghosts and stick figures wriggling on a spit? As a kid in the early 80s, I had a subscription to the X-Men. How many of you collected hard copy comic books and had alter egos? Shout out to my people. Maybe it's a Gen X thing. I like to think I was the only little black girl at that time on planet Earth and among the exoplanets who had an original copy of X-Men's 1981 Days of Future Past delivered by a flesh and blood letter carrier every month. Days of Future Past was about mutants being criminalized and thrown into internment camps. And back then it was the cool epic for kid comic book collectors. Now it is a timely metaphor for the criminalization that black, BIPOC, queer, disabled, and undocumented folks face 24-7. Back then I was that nerd, that awkward black girl with the funny name, that weird girl who had no voice in an era when the hashtag MeToo movement was nowhere to provide a language for sexual violence survivors. I was that girl who was always afraid to speak because I'd be labeled stupid, ugly, mouthy, bitchy, too black, too white acting, but who nonetheless found this cosmic groove in the imaginary, who wanted to bust out of her body and control the weather like storm. 1986, y'all. Teleport like Nightcrawler, my boy or read minds like Professor X. The extended winter of the pandemic had many of us longing to do these things, to be what I'll say, mad intergalactic, saving the universe through telepathy and time travel, going off to chill in Wakanda or Asgard, demigods and not the flawed mere mortals that we are, but graduates, now that you have that all important piece of paper, now that you are bad asses at the shoreline on the constant edge of decision, what will you do to help another human being, a young person, follow and be righteous in their truth and on their path? How will you mentor, teach, and uplift, take time, time, and more time to nurture, to listen to, that little weird scared you from elementary school that still jangles inside your head while giving back to your community. When I started UCLA in 1986, my first and last days as a freshman were marred by violence. 
I was assaulted in public by my then boyfriend in Santa Monica as people watched. The second incident occurred in my dorm room right after finals. And like many survivors, I went through the cycle of self-blame, shame, and silence. I tried to shrink myself. I avoided forming lasting friendships at school. And I was on the brink of being kicked out twice. And looking back, I realized that most of my college years can be seen through the lens of violence, even though I had the critical support and care of my loving parents. Writing fiction and plays became safe space and solace, even amidst the tons of rejections, and I do mean tons, I received that often made me feel like even more of a failure. Writing was a space that I could control that I could set my own wayward ship to sail and give a big fat middle finger to the world. Whatever our journeys are, we all stand on the shoulders of the invisible. We are all literally alive and able to speak because of the women who did not make it, because of the warriors who did not plan to be, because of the outlaws who broke the day with raw fists and the unsung history makers and caregivers who made a way out of no way, going to shit jobs on mass transit, hungry in the graveyard howl of night and constantly inventing themselves. These in the margins artists of all disciplines who were never given the license to write, to draw, to paint by so-called polite white society. The pandemic of everyday violence was ripped open last year with the convergence of the virus and the global movement for black lives. For many of us, 2020 is walled off by the Everest of before and after, before Trump's Orwellian lies and fascist double down, before anti-blackness reached a fever pitch with the terrorist police and vigilante murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Ahmed Arbery and a Tatiana Jefferson, and so many more. Before lockdowns and social distancing became the new normal, and before remote learning and catastrophic mental health and social emotional losses for children of color flushed the myth of American exceptionalism down the toilet yet again. On March 12, 2020, when I was prepping for the Women's Leadership Project's first LGBTQI Youth of Color Institute, for middle and high school kids, I started getting these emails from the LAUSD about field trip cancellations. Surreal messages with the whiff of sci-fi flooded my inbox. At the last minute, we shifted the event from a beautiful nature preserve on the top of the hill to King Drew Medical Magnet High School in South LA. Shout out to King Drew. In the shadow of an unknown and looming pandemic, the youth used this safe space to reflect on their leadership and their solidarity, but also on the insidious role that organized religion, bullying, and family non-acceptance played in their sense of emotional trauma. In some instances, gender and sexuality alliances, or GSAs, and other affinity groups have become their chosen family. Chosen family 
never victim blame, shame, or gaslight you with pressure to protect and cosign abusive family. Chosen family don't say, well, all you need is prayer or all you need is to get good with God. Chosen family enfolds you with unconditional love. And many of you have certainly had to rely on chosen family to see you through, to flip the script and say, no, actually, water is thicker than blood. These kinships and alliances became the bridge for BIPOC queer youth who aren't safe in their homes and schools. They became a lifeline for those who are not safe in their churches, where they are forced to hide who they are amidst a drumbeat of toxic masculinity and respectability politics. Let's be clear, queer youth continue to be under attack in this nation and they need you and they need us. Let's be clear, crystal clear, that it is not just Texas and it is not just Florida that are threats. It is every school and community here in so-called liberal California where transphobia and homophobia are normalized through the erasure of BIPOC queer lives in the curriculum. It is the everyday fear and anxiety of your siblings and your children and your little cousins. And I call on you, badasses, as a new generation of mental health practitioners, social workers, teachers, mentors, nurses, and doctors to go beyond Pride Month. The ancestors, Stormy De La Vere, Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, Bayard Rustin, Polly Murray, Margaret Chung, and Audre Lorde call on us to blow up a status quo that corporatizes heroes and holidays on the one hand and black trauma on the other. They call on us to peel back the onion layers of a world where black trans women routinely die from homicide and no one bats a damn eye. They call on us to challenge a world where thousands more BIPOC youth commit silent suicide because they are misgendered in schools that still view queerness as white. And I don't think I need to tell you that this is one of the most important calls to service in your lives, especially as we see white supremacist transphobes and misogynists tearing down anti-racist education and queer affirming care to rewrite history and their corrupt image. The pandemic has blasted the normal boundaries of familyhood, safety, and kin. And psychologists also say that we dream differently, that we're on perpetual driftwood, a nation of sleep disorder somnambulists, insomniacs, and teeth grinders. But when these gatekeepers pronounce that we are experiencing new and spectacular kinds of trauma, I always ask, who exactly is the we? Is the we folks who never knew trauma before the pandemic? Is the we folks who can rely on the comfort and certainty of warm beds and regular meals and clean drinking water and rent or mortgage that are paid on time every month? Is the we those who can rely on not having to worry about being policed, incarcerated, or mowed down by racist terrorists. 
Long before wellness and mental health became pandemic buzzwords and phrases, people of color have had to learn how to deal with the psychological toll of racism, sexism, and white supremacy and asking the basic question, how do we give black, brown, indigenous, and Asian children the tools to survive and then thrive in America KKK, especially in the midst of a bankrupt American dream that is only alive and cracking for the 1%, those fortunate sun oligarch parasites who can man luxury missions to the moon on the backs of full-time non-unionized Amazon workers dining at food banks and living in shelters. Over the past weeks, we have been traumatized by the gross abuses of power displayed by theocrats. We are being held hostage by five Supreme Court Christian fascists who are a pitchfork away from hacking up Roe. This would be an act of political, economic, and religious warfare on our bodies and communities. And many of you have been out there on the front lines demanding that this country not roll back the gains women, trans, and non-binary folks have made. This has been your and our inheritance, the unseen courage of all the women of color and poor white women and queer folks pre-row who died, who were maimed, who were illegally sterilized, who were denied birth control and forced into motherhood. They made it possible for many of us to be here today, and we owe them a debt of gratitude for their sacrifice. It's been heartening to see elders come forward to speak out on the destruction they experienced during the coat hanger and back alley era. If not for them, I would not have been able to have the two abortions in college that allowed me to be here today. Many of us who got abortions in the 90s and had to brave white men wielding bloody fetuses and burn in hell signs would be in good company with all the other sinners and nasty women blasphemers. It's been said that if cis white Christian men could get pregnant, there would not only be a clinic on every corner, but that the government would subsidize one-stop shopping abortions at the big box retail stores, at Target, at Walmart, and probably even Starbucks. Graduates, these past two years, you've been reminded over and over again, in the words of Baby Suggs from Toni Morrison's novel, Beloved, that in this here place, we flesh. Suggs was an unchurched pastor delivering a secular sermon to formerly enslaved African-Americans in Ohio. And she said, we flesh that weeps, laughs, flesh that dances on bare feet and grass. Love it, love it hard, because yonder, they do not love your flesh, they despise it. They do not love your neck unnoosed and straight. So love your neck and put a hand on it, grace it, stroke it, and hold it up. For black folks, who were only granted birthright citizenship under the 14th Amendment, loving your flesh hard was and is a dangerous and a revolutionary notion. 
It is no accident that bodily autonomy, individual rights, and the right to privacy enshrined under the 14th are in the gravest jeopardy at this historical moment. And so the question is, how will y'all shut that shit down? How will you shut it down? The ancestors are looking to you, and don't make me come back here as a saber-toothed gnat to hound you. Kidding. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in the woo-woo. Your generation has been told that the planet is dying and you've come out swinging, demanding real solutions for climate change. You continue to say to a hostile world that we are here, we are unapologetically queer, and get the fuck used to it. You push for critical consciousness that not only do black lives matter, but that anti-blackness and racial capitalism and white supremacy and settler colonialism are indeed the backbone of white American wealth. You have come to slay, not with bullets and military might and MAGA cowardice, but with love, compassion, empathy, curiosity, and the righteous rage of transformative justice. And so I ask you to listen when that daydreamy storyteller, that weird little insecure on fire with a thousand questions kid that you might have been when that kid yanks you on the pants leg and asks for time, asks for care, and asks to be heard, maybe they will say something like this. Won't you celebrate with me what I have shaped into a kind of life? I had no model. Born in Babylon, both non-white and woman. What did I see to be except myself? I made it up here on this bridge between starshine and clay, my one hand holding tight my other hand. Come celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. And those are the words of Lucille Clifton. Best of luck, graduates. Congratulations on this bridge between starshine and clay to Wakanda, infinity, and beyond. Thank you. Well, that's a wrap. You've been listening to Where We're Headed. We're going to take a little break for the summer, but we will be back with a brand new slate of episodes for our next season, season two. Thank you so much for listening.